Thank you, music team, for leading us in that song that echoes our passage this morning in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3, sorry, verses 4 through 6. It can be found on page 977 in the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. And I do want to say a special welcome this morning to Matthew Elliott. We've been praying for you for some time, brother, and we're glad you're here. Uh, to, to be on staff here at the church and to partner with us in ministry. Uh, please greet Matthew after the church, and, uh, and if someone will please correct him on his job description since uh, Shep added some more to it. So, um. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. This is God's holy, inerrant, and authoritative word to us this morning. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we, we freely confess to you that we lack the strength to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And so help us, Lord, we pray. Teach us, we pray. Help us to see your glory, your beauty here in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Raise your hand if you're sick of politics already. <laughs> <laughs> All right, can I get an amen? Everybody jumped on that one. <laughs> We're kind of in an intense political season right now. You can't seem to, to get away from it. We find ourselves uh, talking about it, reading about it all the time. And, and there's one word in this uh, political season we find ourselves in that keeps getting used over and over and over, and that's it's the word unity. We keep hearing different things like unity, oneness, togetherness, like-mindedness, uh, we, we stand, we're to stand together, we're, we're told over and over that these things are important, we're even told over and over that if we can't do these things, that they are so absolutely uh, critical that the human race will fall, <laughs> as we know it, if we can't keep it together. But what about the church? What about unity for Christians, unity in the Christian life, unity for the church. Is it important? Yes, absolutely it is. Amen. Uh, we learned last week that unity is one of the key attributes for godliness in the Christian life. It is one of those attitudes, one of those characteristics that Paul said that we are to walk in, unity. We learned that our unity is in Christ. If you're in Christ, if you belong to Jesus, then you have a, a unifying bond with others that is special because you're in Christ. This bond that we have in Christ, it's, it's different. The bonds that we have in Christ allow us to go deeper into relationship, uh, deeper into intimacy with others as we might work through difficulties, as we might grow in our marriage, as we might grow in our friendship. All of these things are unique and, and unifying because we're in Christ. 
And so what does unity in the church look like? What, what, what does unity even mean? Is it important? Before we go deeper here into this passage, to go a little further here, I want to clarify something. I want to explain something, make a distinction that I think is important for us to understand in the Scriptures, especially in this passage. And that is the distinction that the Bible often makes between what I would call the church big C and the church little c. There's often times where we read the Scriptures where it seems like the, the truth that is being applied here applies to the church from for all time, throughout ages, all churches, every church. But there's also times where the church is being addressed in a very specific way, the, the local church, the church little c. Scholars have often called this the distinction between the, the visible church and the invisible church. The invisible church is all of God's people throughout all of time worshiping Him who belong to Christ, who are even in glory with Him now. Yet the visible church is manifests itself often locally, the church little c. Paul, we see here, is addressing the local church, the church in Ephesus. It was a gathering of believers in Christ in Ephesus that he was encouraging, that he was calling them to walk with Christ. And yet this teaching that he has here for the local church in Ephesus, we see has very much, has practical application and teaching for us. Cornerstone, as a local church, and all local churches, for that matter, throughout time. But we also see even further, as we go even deeper, that these truths that we're going to study this morning is true for the church invisible, the church big C, the church throughout all of time. These are unifying truths that we're going to study, to look at this morning. The true unity of the church, the unity that the Apostle Paul is describing for us here, it's a, it's a spiritual unity. This unity is based in the truths of, of God's Word alone, and it is bound to us by the Holy Spirit. Again, we'll study that a little more here in a minute. Christian unity, though, I want you to see this morning as he's explaining for us, is doctrinal unity. Christian unity is doctrinal unity. If we're, if we're to have unity in the spirit of the bond of peace, what, what are the grounds? What are the bases for this unity? How do we have it? Can you have unity, true biblical unity, without doctrinal unity? And this passage lays out for us the basis of that Christian unity, the, the oneness that we're to have in Christ. Now, as I read this passage, and maybe you've read ahead, maybe you've read it before, and uh, I freely confess to you that there's times where I've read, read this and other places, I agree with the Apostle Peter, that the, uh, that the Apostle Paul writes things that are hard and difficult to understand. <laughs> and this is one of those passages. It's, it's hard to understand and hard to interpret. So let's do our best to see the biblical, practical application that we have here and in these verses that we read, you'll notice a key word that appeared seven times, and that is the word one. And so Paul has something to say about the oneness that we are to have in Christ, or the unity. And he mentions it seven times, and many of us know that the, word, that the number seven is, in, is important in biblical terms. It often 
symbolizes uh, the, the number of completeness or fullness. And even the number one has that meaning as well, as we learn that God is one. So we have seven ones that are mentioned in this passage. But as we look closer, I want you to see that these seven ones are actually organized around the number three. And they're actually number, organized around the Trinity. The Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We confessed this morning during our confessional time that God is one, yet he's three and one, one and three. That's so confusing, isn't it? But it is the biblical teaching on the Trinity. In the Godhead, there is the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We've been in Ephesians for weeks and months now. And we've seen very clearly, very distinctly in the book of Ephesians that the Trinity is talked about over and over and over. That the plan of salvation, God's mercy, God's grace, God's love has been poured out through the Trinitarian work of God. And so the Trinity is very important, and this passage is no different. Look in verse 4. We see the unity in the Holy Spirit. In verse 5, we observe the unity in the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 6, we note that our unity is in God, who is our Father. And so the unity of the church is doctrinal unity. It's Trinitarian unity. And these ones, this oneness that we are having in Christ, they are to constitute what the true church is about. They are to delineate for us what our doctrinal unity must look like. So let's look at these three parts of the Holy Spirit talking about our oneness in Christ, the unity that we have in the church. And the first there is in verse 4. The Apostle Paul says there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. We are to be one in the Spirit, he says. That is, we are one in the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit, the, the third person of the Godhead, who is at work in the church. It is the Holy Spirit who is at work in the people of the church, bringing them to Christ, convicting them of their sin helping them to grow in their walk, bringing us all together as one. It's the Holy Spirit that does this work. Oftentimes in the church, we use language like I decided or I chose or I made this decision once and one time ago as if we all could just do whatever we want. And it's all about our decisions, yet we see that it's the Holy Spirit who draws people together and unifies them. It is he that is working in the church throughout ages of all time. The theologian Charles Hodge says this. He says, There's no teaching in Scripture more clearly revealed than that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in all believers and that his presence is the ultimate ground of their unity as the body of Christ. As the human body is one, because it is pervaded by one soul. So the body of Christ is one because it is pervaded by one spirit who dwells in everyone and is a common principle of life. And so is the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that makes us one body, he says here in verse 4. The one body that 
that Paul is referring to here is the body of Christ. Another word that the another term that the scripture uses to describe the church. We are the body of Christ. The church is not referred to as a machine. The, re- the church is not even uh, referred to as a, an organization or an institution. It's referred to as a body, a living entity with many parts that all work together for one common goal, one common purpose. Our bodies grow through the multiplication of our cells and give us different limbs and things to use our body for, parts for. All of these parts working together is what makes us a body that helps us live and breathe and have our being. And the church is like this as well, the Bible teaches. We are a body. The unity that Paul describes for the Ephesians Christians, he says, is unity of the Spirit. In other words, the unity that we have as the one body of Christ is a spiritual unity. Our unity is spirit-born. Our unity is spirit-produced. Our unity is brought about by the Holy Spirit working in the body. It's important to note here, though, that unity, the unity we're talking about in the church, unity in the body of Christ is not the same thing as uniformity. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. What do I mean by that statement? Our tendency this day and age is to think of the church as merely an institution. The church is a building or a bunch of buildings collected around the town, and that's who the church is. It's, it's the social clubs around town that meet on Sunday mornings. That's oftentimes how we think of the church as institutional. But that is contrary to biblical teaching. Richard Phillips, a pastor in Greenville, South Carolina, says, we tend to view the church from an outward and organizational perspective, whereas Paul's view is spiritual. The unity Paul is interested in is not one where we all come together under the same organizational structure and all answer to one human chain of command. That's not unity. That would be uniformity, making everybody the same under the same umbrella, that type of thing. It doesn't work in politics to try to make everybody uniform, and I feel pretty confident that God doesn't want us to necessarily be that way. I don't think God's will is to have one single denomination across the planet, except when we get to heaven. I'm positive we'll all be Presbyterians, so um, no, I'm totally kidding, no. There is a diversity that exists among the church. I'm going to say something about that here in a minute. In the scriptures, we read about a church that is diverse, a church that is different, a church that shows unity but is not necessarily uniform across the board because the church is a body. The church is made up of individuals. We all have individualistic tastes different tastes in music. We all have different gifts. We have different clothing we have, like. We even have different football teams we cheer for. It doesn't make logical sense to try to make everyone the same and uniform across the board. And the church, in the sense, expresses unity through its diversity. I think that many people place 
us included, we place unrealistic expectations upon the local church. I mean, how many of you have said in your lifetime or heard someone else say, you know, I don't really care about going to church because it's, it's a mess or it's made up of a bunch of, of hypocrites or it's, it's so divided, why would I want to go and attend something like that? When everything else in life is like that, we place unrealistic expectations on the church. And I think the reason why maybe we have these unrealistic expectations, just one of them, is because we fail to understand that diversity in the church is actually a good thing. Diversity is actually a beautiful thing. Diversity is actually a, a biblical thing. And so this may beg the question that other people struggle with. Why are there so many different denominations? I mean, that's proof, right, that the church is a mess and not as God intended because there's so many different denominations. What is up with that? How do we understand that? We tend to think of the different denominations in this world, and they're more than we can count. That proves that there is disunity. No way there can be unity in the church with all of the different denominations. But have you ever stopped to think about that the diversity of all the many different denominations that exist in this world could, could actually do good for our unity and actually do good for the cause of the gospel and may not necessarily be a sign of disunity? I mean, think about it. Think about even just the churches that you know in this town or churches that you've been a part of in your past in different towns and different locations. Some of those churches were really good at evangelism. I mean, that church is awesome at reaching out and sharing the gospel with people. Uh, There's some churches that are better at serving the poor. That, That church just really loves to get into the poor communities and serve them and be the hand of feet of Christ. Some churches are really good teaching centers. There's some churches that are just, just knock the ball out of the park when it comes to teaching doctrine and equipping people and helping them to know the Bible. Diversity is actually a good thing. <laughs> the, the diversity can be a beautiful thing for the cause of the gospel. It is not necessarily a cause for disunity or a marker of disunity. Because we get back now to the things that make us one. And and part of this unity that we have in the Spirit, the church has one hope. Hope. Hope does not mean the same thing that it used to. Oftentimes when we hear the word hope, it commonly means that we're uncertain, uncertain about something or we wish that something would happen, but we don't really expect it to happen. But that's not the biblical use of the word hope. Because when the Bible uses the word hope, it is oftentimes describing a sure and a certain thing. How does hope unite Christians? How does it bring unity? Paul is referring to the hope that all Christians should have. That we all share in common. This hope that Christ will return one day. This hope that We will all be called home one day to eternally share in heaven with our Lord. We all aspire to that hope. We may have differences of opinion and 
different strengths across denominational lines, but we are all to have the same hope in Christ. Paul says in Romans 5, which is part of our meditation for worship, the scripture, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Our unity exists because we all have this one hope in Christ. But going further, we see the the unifying uh, nature of the Holy Spirit, that we are one body, that we have one hope, yet we have one Lord. And our one Lord symbolizes our one faith and one baptism, we read in verse 5. The word Lord in the New Testament is an important word, especially when it's referring to Jesus. That is one of the common uh, titles that he uses for himself and that other uses. Jesus is the Lord. And this is actually to take our minds back to the Old Testament, to remind us that Jesus is Yahweh. He's the Old Testament Lord. He's God. He is the great I Am. And so the unity of the church is through the one and only God that we read about in Deuteronomy. He's the one king, the only king and head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one. He's the one Lord. How much better off our churches would be, how much change we could affect in this world, if all of the churches would unify around just this one principle that Jesus is Lord. He is the king and the head of his church. He is the Lord. We are here to do his work. We're here to serve him, not ourselves. He is the Lord. Because in Christ alone, who is the one Lord, we have one faith. One faith, not just any faith, not just choose your different faith, but faith in Christ, faith by grace through faith in Christ alone. So where do we get our definition of this one faith that we have in the Lord? Who gets to decide what, what the ultimate truth is that defines our unity in the faith? It's where we turn to the Scriptures. It's where we turn to the Bible. And we can go many different places in the Scriptures to describe this one faith, this definition of this one faith that we have in Christ. But let's just Let's just look at the book of Ephesians. Let's just think back on the previous three chapters where we are told that we were dead in our sins, yet God made us alive in Christ. By his death on the cross, we have been redeemed. That is the one faith. That is the one true and living faith. That's the statement of faith that we are to have in our unity. And so that statement of faith tells us a few crucial things, that Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the one who became a man and who died and who rose again, and he ascended into heaven. These things about Jesus, they're they're non-negotiables. They are true biblical faith. They are the unifying truths of God's word, that is what this one faith is. Paul goes on to say that we have in Christ alone one baptism. 
Now that is a word that has caused anything but unity in the church. <laughs> there have been more fights and more disunity through the churches, especially throughout the last three or four hundred years, over baptism and what it means and what it signifies. Some would say that baptism is one of the greatest causes of disunity. Why? I think the reason there's so much confusion and even disunity over the subject of baptism is because I think we're more concerned with how it's done rather than what it signifies. We have one baptism. Baptism is one of the two sacraments given by the Lord Jesus Christ to his church. Baptism's purpose is to show our public identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. In a very public way, we're, we're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to show that we are in Christ. Baptism does not save us. It cannot save us. It is a visible sign of an invisible reality. Baptism shows very visibly the, the washing away of our sin and identifying us with the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we all have our different modes and ways that we were baptized, but the one important qualifier that the Bible gives is that our baptism must be in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not whether you were dunked in a river, a pool, a bathtub, sprinkled, dripped, Sprayed, hose, whatever. <laughs> Did I miss any? Many of you were baptized in many different ways. We're not all the same. At Cornerstone Presbyterian Church and most PCA churches, we accept any baptism if it's done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because it is the public identification that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you been baptized? Baptism is actually a marker of unity. Have you been baptized into Christ? Have you publicly identified with the Lord Jesus Christ? Baptism is part of this unity that we have. The third part here of this oneness that we're to have in Christ, the third point of the Trinity here, is that we have one God and Father of all. Look there in verse 6. One God and Father of all who is over all, and through all, and in all. To complete the Trinitarian unity in the church, Paul brings us back to the idea of a family. We in the church have unity because we are a family. We are the body of Christ. The body of Christ, the family of God, has one Father, God the Father. In Christ, God is our heavenly Father. He is the loving, disciplining, guiding, providing Father over His church who sent His one and only Son as a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. The church is not guided and led by some impersonal force. The church is not unified by some cosmic good feeling where we all sing Kumbaya together. But that's not a bad thing. Kumbaya is a Hebrew phrase. You do know that, right? It means come my way, Lord. <laughs> we can sing that because God is our Father. The church is led by the Father who is over all, 
and through all and in all. He is everything. He is everything. And we have this oneness. We can have this unity with each other because we have the same dad. We have the same father. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, kind of wrapping this up, such is the way in which the apostle handles the doctrine of church unity. He does not leave it as an impersonal appeal to be kind and longing and long-suffering and good. The true unity, the biblical unity, unity that works, unity that lasts, is unity that is built around the oneness of the triune God. Three in one, one in three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that is why Trinitarian belief is absolutely crucial. That is why it's absolutely biblical. That's why we must study it and read it and praise God for it. And so some of you may be thinking, Pastor, I thought you were going to be starting to talk about the more practical things of the Christian life. I thought that's where the turn went in Ephesians chapter 4. Yes, we want to be practical in our Christian walk and practical in our unity. But we cannot be practical if we don't know the truth. This is practical truth. Belief in the Trinity is absolutely crucial to true faith and true unity. And that's why there can be no unity without doctrinal unity. That's why we must have be one body and under one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is in all and through all and, in, and all in all. And so let's get practical in the Christian life. Here it is. Let's be amazed at the Trinitarian work of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit in the church. Let's worship the King who is all glorious above. God the Spirit has united us to be one body. God the Son has saved us by His death on the cross. God the Spirit, God the Father, has made us all part of His family and loved us as a Heavenly Father. These things are vital to Christian unity. These ones, these seven ones, are the Bible's standard of truth. And we cannot have unity if we're not unified in this truth. And so that's why we sing one church, one faith, one Lord of life, one Father, one Spirit, one Christ. One church, one faith, one Lord of life, one heavenly King, Lord of all. Praise Him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we, we do want unity. We do crave unity. We, we desire to be one as you are one. And so, Lord, help us to think biblically. Help us to see that the true unity, the biblical unity that you call your church to is around who you are, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to live as, as one body, serving one another, giving to one another, loving one another. Lord, help us to aspire to this 
one hope that you have given us in Christ. Lord, help us to be the church that you've called us to be. And that is like Christ in the walk with him. We praise you and thank you that you love us, that you teach us. Help us to do these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.